0: Each week this December, each Sunday that is, in December, I have pointed out how many of the songs we sing during the Christmas season and the carols that we sing have themes of Genesis chapter 3 in them. This morning I want to turn our attention to two popular Christmas songs that I think most of us will be really familiar with. The first one is Away in a Manger, No Crib for a Bed, The Little Lord Jesus Laid Down His Sweet Head. Later in the song the cattle are lowing the baby awakes but little Lord Jesus no crying he makes Then silent night holy night all is calm all is bright round yon virgin mother and child holy infant tender and mild sleep in heavenly peace sleep in heavenly peace Why bring up these two songs they certainly don't have anything to do with Genesis chapter 3. If you're waiting for that, like, okay, I'm kind of missing it, Pastor Phil. Well, it's not there. And I don't bring them up because I want to criticize them or critique them, but because I think these songs illustrate what sometimes happens during Christmas for Christians in particular. Sometimes we focus on the sweet little baby in the cradle, and we miss his purpose of suffering and his blood on the cross. This Christmas, I want to help us see the birth of Jesus as a larger, bigger story. And that story is a cosmic war. It is about battles. It's about crushing blows to the head. And all it takes is a casual reader of the New Testament stories and events surrounding the birth of Jesus to see that all was not calm in Bethlehem. As Erica read for us in the New Testament Scripture reading just moments ago from Matthew chapter 2, do we sometimes forget when we took our gaze and put it on the baby in the manger that that baby is being chased, being persecuted. That baby is threatened to be killed right from its birth. Sweet little baby Jesus. Now, in case you're thinking, whoa, pastor, you're ruining the Christmas spirit real quick here. What about joy to the world and peace on earth? I do want us to have great hope and joy this morning on Christmas, but I want to ask you, where do you think that comes from? Does it come from sentimentalism, sweet pictures of a baby, or does it come from a bloody cross? that that baby came to die. What reasons do you have to sing with joy or to live with peace in a world that, to my estimation and observations, is full of such sorrow? A world that lacks such peace? Unless you're reading different news headlines than I am this week, even the week of Christmas is full of bloodshed and tears and pain. So this isn't just about coming to church on Christmas Sunday and having warm, fuzzy feelings. This is about a deep-rooted hope, a long-lasting peace, roots that will go deep into the ground like a tree that can withstand any storm or hurricane. My hope and prayer is that as we consider the greater, bigger story of Christmas this morning, God will deepen our roots into our trust and our love into his word and to what our Savior has done for us. My friends, this story begins in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, when the good God who made a world with nothing but goodness, very goodness, all around it. That that world was corrupted as the ancient serpent, who is the devil, deceived the woman and led Adam and Eve to join in his doubting the goodness of God and the trustworthiness of his word. For a brief moment in this story, it seems as if the serpent wins. Adam and Eve join forces with him and rebel against God, take the forbidden fruit and reject the authority of the king of kings. Now, if you were God, how do you think you would respond if the people you just made And you gave them a wonderful world full of only good things. Just slapped you in the face. As we take a look at Genesis chapter 3 verses 14 and 15, we see how this God responds. He does not immediately yell at them. He doesn't strike them down with his anger and his wrath, although they would be deserving of it. God immediately curses the serpent. And instead of having the humans join the serpent's team in the rebellion against God, God promises there will be a war between the humans and the serpent. In Genesis 3, verse 14, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. All throughout this service, I wanted you to see this word seed in all caps on the screen because I want you to see the story of the Bible and therefore the story of Christmas is about two seeds. Now just to be clear, this word seed is also translated in some of your Bibles in front of you as descendants, or offspring, or children, progeny. Whichever word you'd like to use, seeds mean having a family. So when you read your Bibles, you'll see throughout that these words are used. But There's one Hebrew word that is common among them all. And every time you see them up front on the screen, I'll have the word in all caps, SEED. And that's what I mean by it. Not a seed that you put in the ground, but a seed that brings a family. In Genesis 3.15, we notice that God has in mind a particular seed. He will strike the head of the serpent. The serpent will strike his heel, but he will strike it. The question throughout the rest of the Bible is, who is this one who will crush the serpent's head? And It will be a wounded victor a wounded victor that as he's crushing the serpent's head, the serpent is attacking and biting and letting a deathly lethal snake bite. You see, this question of who this serpent crushing wounded victor will be is the question that the rest of the Bible is given to answer. As Charles Spurgeon once said, in the same way that a giant oak tree comes from one small little acorn, So we see the mighty gospel of Jesus Christ is found in this one short little promise in Genesis 3.15. Or as Sinclair Ferguson said, the whole Bible is one very long footnote explaining the details of Genesis 3.15. This is why many Bible teachers and theologians have called this picture and this image of the crushing serpent by the wounded victor the first promise of the gospel. This curse of the serpent is the first time we hear God's word of promise, his word of hope. So stop and think about this just for a second. Is it not amazing that as soon as sin comes into the world, some of the very first words that come out of God's mouth are words of hope, words of deliverance, words of victory over sin and evil? My friends, if you don't understand the God of the Bible, this is what he's like. This is how he deals with sin. And if you know yourself today to be a sinner, you can know that he wants to deal with sin in a gracious, but in a just way. This God speaks his salvation through judgment. He is both perfectly just and perfectly merciful, all in the same moment as he gives these words of curse. If you consider yourself someone who wants to see an end of sin in your own life or in the world, then you should take great comfort and let these words warm your heart to know that the God of the Bible is a God who will put an end to sin and he will do it in a most unique way by letting that curse of sin affect him. He will become the wounded victor. That's the story that we see. It's the story we see all the rest of the Bible is this seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. So, do you know what story comes after Genesis chapter 3? Do you know what happens next, right after the garden in the fall? Cain and Abel. Have you ever asked yourself, why is this the next story in Scripture? Why would the very next story be about two seeds two sons one who pleased God and one who did not please God as you start asking those questions you think why a story between two sons that aren't getting along and in fact one kills the other it's because immediately the author of scripture is telling you that there is a war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent Cain kills his brother Abel with evil and anger in his heart Cain is part of the serpent's seed. Now, if you're thinking, you might be thinking, wait a second, Cain was born of Eve. How can you say he's a seed of the serpent if he was born a seed of the woman? Yes, Cain was born physically as a descendant of Eve. But this story of these two seeds right from the start is showing us that it doesn't matter about physical descendants only. That's only part of the story. Several times throughout the story of Scripture, the physical descendants of the seed of the woman are corrupted. They join alliances with the seed of the serpent and they start attacking, mocking, hurting, chasing, wanting to kill the seed of the woman. In case you think, I think you might be making this up, Pastor Phil. Listen to the way one of Jesus' disciples in 1 John chapter 3 talks about the story of Cain and Abel. 1 John chapter 3 whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That, my friends, is one great sentence of what Christmas is all about. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Do you see what John's trying to say here? People who make a practice of sinning. People who are identified and known by their anger and their hatred and their evil. They are of the devil. doesn't matter your physical descendants or birth. Where do you think John got this idea from anyway? Well, later on in your study of Scripture, you should read John chapter 8 and notice that it was Jesus himself that looked at the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders of his day, who were born of the Abrahamic descendant physically. And he said, Abraham's not your father. You're sons of the devil because he was a murderer from the beginning and you're trying to murder me. John got this from Jesus. Jesus. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. It's not just about physical descent, although we do see that the seed of the woman does perpetuate and continue through the physical line, but not just physical. The rest of the story in Genesis chapter 4 is the story of Cain's genealogy. So in case you're wondering, well, do you think that they got this idea before Jesus explained it to him, I'd say yes. Just read the rest of Genesis chapter four and notice what happens with the seed of Cain. Cain leads to Enoch, to Erad, to Mehulah, Methuselah, to then Lamech. And then this is the reason that you should perk your ears and eyes. Lamech is the first polygamist. Not a good idea, by the way, in the Bible. Just because he had two wives doesn't mean the Bible is condoning polygamy this is a bad dude, and he is in the line of the serpent. And notice the way in these quotes in your Bible, it's going to be a poetic song. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech is 77-fold. Lamech is boasting in his murders. Just straight evil. Look at this picture of Lamech. By the way, all these pictures are from the Bible Project Just Google search Bible Project, wonderful artwork and videos. These are all just short captions of pictures that artists put together. A pastor friend of my brother uh, does this work, and they're wonderful for you and your children. Highly recommend them. There's a new one that just came out on the birth of Jesus that is great. So here's their rendition of this Occupying wives as property and killing people and being proud and boastful. this is what comes of Cain's family. This is the seed of the serpent, Lamech. And at the end of Genesis chapter four, though, in Genesis 4:25, God gives Eve a new seed. Notice the, the word "seed" pops up again right after we hear about Lamech, and like, "Oh no, is the seed of the woman like, is it over?" Has it been crushed? Has it been defeated? I thought that the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. But now we see murder and Lamech and what's going to happen? God appoints and gives a new seed in place for Abel. And that seed is called Seth. So now take Genesis 4 and Genesis 5, put them next to each other. And what do you see? You see in Genesis chapter 5, Adam to Seth to then Noah. Noah. Compare that with Cain to Lamech. The murder polygamist, Adam's seed leads to the one righteous man in the face of all the unrighteousness in the world. It couldn't be more clear. The story in the first five chapters is about two seeds. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent leads to murder and evil and sin. The seed of the woman leads to righteous men and women. In fact, Noah's seed is told to have the promise of Abraham, uh, the promise that was given to the woman continued. So in Genesis 9-9, after the flood story, God spoke to Noah and said to his sons, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. The seed of the woman follows not just to Noah, but to then Noah's sons. Now, if you remember the flood story, God's starting all over with just this one family. Should we be surprised that Noah, the new Adam, the new head of all of humanity, has three sons like Adam had three sons? And in those three sons, we find conflict yet again. We have this shameful story of Noah and Ham right after the flood. Noah finds himself drunk and naked in a tent, and Ham does not cover over his nakedness. There's some sort of shady action going on that we're not told the details of, but what we do know is that as soon as Noah wakes up, he curses Ham. Now, if you're not following and thinking that this has any significance, this next point, I think, is just crystal clear. Genesis chapter 10 comes right after this incident, and it tells you that Ham's seed, the seed of Noah's son, The cursed one, that one, leads to the the people who make the Tower of Babel, which was not a good thing. The Assyrians and the Ninevites, the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Canaanites, Sodom, Gomorrah, basically think of every bad guy and city and people that are enemies of God's people in all of the Bible, they all flow from the seed of Ham. That's what Genesis 10 is telling you. That this whole story between seeds of the woman and the seeds of the serpent continues through Noah's line. But it is Shem who leads to the faithful Abraham. Or Abram, as he is, before his name gets changed. There's one problem, though, at the end of Genesis chapter 11. The seed can't continue if you can't have children. And Genesis chapter 11, verse 30 says, Now Sarah was barren. She had no children child Sarah because her name gets changed later to Sarah but you would know her as Abraham and Sarah this wonderful couple early on in the story of scripture that God promises them that they will have as many descendants as the stars in the sky God tells them that they will have this wonderful promise that if they look up into the heavens they will see seeds that's the exact language here in Genesis 15:5 look toward the heaven and the number of stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall, your, so shall your seed be. And so we see this picture of Abraham looking up into the stars. And he's supposed to see seed, descendants. God's promise to Abraham is that he will have a great family. But they still haven't had any children. You notice that the curse of Genesis chapter 3, the curse of the woman, the multiplying pain is not just the pain of having children, it's the pain of not being able to have children. God is not just promising a big family for Abraham here in this promise, He is promising a whole new humanity. Abraham is now the new Noah, the new Adam, and Sarah is the new Eve. Abraham believes God's promise in this moment, but you know what happens next? Nothing. For years. Nothing happens. It's not like I gave you this wonderful promise, look at all these stars in the sky, and then the next day they get pregnant. That's the cool story and testimony we like to hear. But the story of the Bible is that there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of waiting. To so eventually, God comes around and says, You're going to have a baby next year. And Sarah laughs. Ha! I'm 89. I'm not having any babies. He's 99. I don't think so. Yep. At every page in the story of Genesis, the seed of the woman seems like it's going to fail. And at just the right time, God delivers. God raises up. God rescues. And then God destroys the seed of the serpent. Abraham and Sarah both get really old But they have a baby, and God gives them Isaac, and Isaac is born, and it looks like things are back on track, but God asks Abraham in a a test to sacrifice his son, his only son. He's been waiting for decades for this son, this seed, this one promised one. He's tried on his own through Ishmael, and God made it clear, Ishmael's not the seed, he's not the one. In fact, it seems like later in the story, Ishmael starts mocking the seed of Isaac and Jacob and Esau and the seed of the woman. It seems like Ishmael becomes more in line with the seed of the serpent, if anything. So this one son, this seed of the woman, is in danger yet again as Abraham holds a knife over his only son. And yet again, God, in the last second, stops Isaac, stops Abraham and spares Isaac life. In this context, this is when God reminds to Abraham yet again his promise in Genesis 22, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand in the seashore. Would you be surprised if I told you that Isaac got married and they couldn't have children? The themes repeat throughout the story of Genesis, but God answers Isaac's prayer in Genesis 25-21. He prays to the Lord because his wife was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah was conceived with not just one, but two. Two children in the womb. Rebekah has Jacob and Esau. Now, these boys... Talk about enmity between two seeds. They start fighting from the time they were seeds. In the mother's womb. Literally, the language in the scriptures is that Jacob and Esau are crushing one another within her. Interesting language, isn't it? Crushing, like crushing the head of the serpent. So these two boys are fighting within one another. A foretaste of what will come because Jacob, as he comes out, steals the father's blessing from his brother Esau. Jacob's the younger brother. He should have not gotten the firstborn blessing, but Jacob steals the father's blessing. Esau gets very angry, and of course, just like Cain, from the seed of the serpent, he wants to kill Esau. Esau wants to kill Jacob. But in this case, Jacob runs away. He does not die. But what's clear is that these two sons are at odds with one another, and what we see next in this Picture here is the Edomites and the Israelites. Esau becomes the father of one of the most hated people groups against the Israelites. The seed of the serpent, Esau's family becomes the hated, dreadful Edomites. But Isaac's seed, Jacob's seed that is, becomes the Israelites as his name gets changed to Israel. And he has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. And it seems like things are right where they should be. Multiplying seeds, the story of the seed of the woman coming to fruition. But these 12 sons, surprise, surprise, they can't get along. The story of Joseph is the last story that we find in the book of Genesis. Joseph is one of Jacob's 12 sons, and 10 of them want to kill Joseph, just like Esau and just like Cain. I hope your Christmas gatherings today will be more loving and peaceful than what we have heard in the book of Genesis. Jealousy, anger, rage, plots to kill, murders. But these brothers settled for just selling their brother to slavery and lying and telling their dad that a fierce animal tore him to pieces. The best part of this story, though, is that just like all the acts of the seed of the serpent, just like all acts of Satan himself, God takes these evil actions of Jacob's brothers and brings them to salvation. In fact, Jacob's family itself is saved Because of their sinful acts of putting Joseph into slavery. Joseph doesn't just go to slavery. He goes down, down, down in an ever deepening pit of one bad thing after another. And when it seems like it couldn't get any worse, God uses Joseph's dreams to make him the second-hand man to the king of Pharaoh and start saving food for the famine that he herds, he hears is predicted, and he saves the rest of his brothers and Jacob's family. That's why you have at the very end of Genesis, Joseph say to his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. I believe we should be reading that last verse, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, as an explanation of all of these horrific stories you've heard in the book of Genesis. The seed of the serpent regularly looks like he's going to win. But in God's providence, he uses all of those evil actions, decisions, and motives for God's good purposes to keep his promises. And my friends, there's the book of Genesis. But why stop there? It's Christmas. After Genesis comes Exodus, the story of the Egyptian slavery under Pharaoh, this awful person. If Lamech was bad, this guy is worse Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, do you see if you look closely what he's wearing on his head? Well, we don't know if he was really wearing this, but we do know that from ancient digs and all kinds of different places where we have King Tut in museums, that the Egyptians believed in the power of the snake and more particularly the viper. And so go look up King Tut's crown that he wore on his head and there's two snakes sticking out. Isn't it interesting that right after Genesis ends, the story picks up right where it leave, left off in Genesis with the story of the Egyptians, the seed of the serpent, the serpent king, the Pharaoh who wants to kill all the seed of the woman and throw these babies into the river. This is dark, It's a foreshadow of what we've already mentioned the seed of the serpent, Herod, who would want to kill all those baby boys in Bethlehem. The story of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman is all through Scripture. What's unbelievable about this battle here is that the seed of the woman seems like it's going to take a hit, but God uses the seed of the woman to crush the head of Pharaoh by unleashing 10 plagues through Moses. As Moses is delivered through an ark-like basket, instead of being thrown into the water to die, he's thrown into the water and saved and rescued. And that tenth and final plague, go figure, it's an attack on the seed of the serpent. The firstborn plague is the image of Pharaoh and all of the Egyptians holding their dead children in their hands, realizing that God will get victory over the seed of the serpent. He will strike down all the firstborn sons, and he will deliver his people out of slavery. The great salvation story in the Old Testament, the one that's referred to time and time again by the New Testament, to say that Jesus is the greater Old Testament Exodus Moses hero. That's a story about conquering seeds. The seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent king Pharaoh. Now, we could go on the rest of the day. Are you getting the drift? And I know we probably have Christmas plans to get to. We could talk about Balaam in the book of Numbers. We could talk about Deborah crushing the head of one of God's enemies in the book of Judges. You could rethink the whole story of Ruth and realize that it's telling a story about how God protects the seed of the woman through a famine and delivers The Israelite seed to the king David. My hope is that you also think differently about some of the common stories like David and Goliath. Should we be surprised that David kills Goliath by crushing his head and chopping it off? David's a seed of the woman, and Goliath is a Philistine, a seed of the serpent. Or maybe as we go back and read the story of Esther, you'll realize that even though God has never once been mentioned in that book, the whole story is about God saving the Jewish people from annihilation and genocide because that's Haman, the furious mad guy in the back who's upset that Mordecai, the Jewish man, won't bow down to his great honor and prestige. Mordecai knows he will not bow down to anyone but the one true God. And so you have a Canaanite, a seed of the serpent, wanting to annihilate all seeds of the women, all seeds of the Jewish Israelite race. Genocide is what he asked for. And just like all the other stories, it gets turned and flipped on his head, and the seed of the serpent is crushed. And then finally, there's the story of the prophets, Isaiah, who spoke about a coming deliverer, a seed from the The family of David that will come in the spirit of the Lord and bring the world to right again. It's in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 8 that we see a a short little line in a very popular Christmas scripture reading. Isaiah chapter 11, the righteous branch of the seed of Jesse coming up. And what does it say in Isaiah 11 verse 8? When this one seed comes, the infants will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. What is that prophetically, metaphorically saying? The war between the serpent and the children will be over. Children and snakes, seeds of the serpent and seed of the woman, will not be at odds with each other anymore. When Jesus comes, the wounded victor who crushes the serpent's head and takes the deadly snake bite, he is the ultimate seed of the woman. Now, with all of this backdrop, does this not make much more sense of the Christmas story? In Luke's gospel, you begin the story with a barren woman in her old, old age who is going to have a son, and this son is going to prepare the way for the Messiah who will preach and tell the Jewish leaders, you snakes, you seeds of the serpent. That's the story of John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus. That's how Luke begins. Have you ever noticed that the New Testament... In Matthew's gospel begins with genealogies. And at first, that might seem like a bunch of names that you can't pronounce, and that part of the Bible that you just skim over and say, okay, let's get to the good stuff, let's get to the baby Jesus. But no. What is Matthew doing, writing to a Jewish audience who's familiar with a Jewish Bible, knowing that the first book of the Bible has the most genealogies in it, Genesis, And the last book of the Bible has the next most genealogies in it, Chronicles. It's not that way in your English Bibles, but a Jew would have had Genesis and Chronicles, genealogy and genealogy, and so the New Testament begins with a genealogical record to show you that Jesus is the seed, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, the ultimate seed of the woman. This is what these New Testament authors are trying to communicate to us. It's what Matthew is doing as he opens up his story. And now it makes sense why Herod, a descendant of Esau, by the way, an Edomite King Herod, a clear seed of the serpent, is trying to attack and kill the seed of the woman. But Herod dies. The seed of the woman is preserved as an angel comes to Joseph, tells them to depart and go to Egypt, just like all these other stories. Abraham famine in the land goes to Egypt. Joseph and his family, famine in the land goes to Egypt. Jesus, persecution, struggles, suffering goes to Egypt. So, this is why the prophet was fulfilled. He will come out of Egypt. The birth of Jesus, you see, is in the middle of a huge cosmic war between seeds It is a bloody war, as we have seen. It is filled with much pain and much sorrow, but just like the end of the Joseph story, this story ends with good news. It ends with the serpent crushed, the evil destroyed, with salvation being come to the conquering hero who doesn't do it with might and force, but with love and humility and with his own life laid on the line. Paul says in Galatians, that if you are in Jesus Christ, then you now too can be a seed of the woman and a child of Abraham. The peace on earth and the joy that comes to the world, the true Christmas spirit doesn't come by staring just at a baby in a manger and thinking, oh, he's cute and cuddly. The true Christmas spirit comes as we grow our roots deep into God's word and realize that God is saving, delivering rescuing us from all evil. In fact, he already has begun through Jesus Christ, through the seed of the woman. And now you can know and have great confidence this morning that whatever comes your way, whether it is evil or sin, whether it is the sin in your own heart, all sin is canceled, defeated sin. It doesn't reign and rule. Christ reigns and rules. We know that even though the battle is not fully over and Christ's return and second coming is not fully here, that Christians will still face much persecution from the seed of the serpent, we can be confident of this. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, not famine, not nakedness, not sword, nothing in heaven above or on the earth below. My friend, how are you doing at living this story as yours? makes all the difference when you realize that these things are true for you. When Christmas is not just sweet and sentimental and warm fuzzies, but it is the story of the whole world, it's the story of the whole Bible, and that God is doing something and has done something through Jesus Christ. We began by looking at two songs, Away in the Manger and Silent Night, Do Not Feel persecuted or discouraged from singing them, that was not my intent. But let me close with one song that we don't normally sing on Christmas, written by Martin Luther. A mighty fortress is our God. In the third verse he says, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. That seed of the woman, that seed of the serpent, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. I love this line. One little word shall fell him. I don't know what Martin Luther had in mind when he wrote that song, but if I had to take a guess, the one little word. That crushed the serpent's head. It's one word in Greek. Tetelestai. It means it's finished. The baby in the manger hangs on a cross and he says, It's finished. It's done. The promise made in Genesis 3:15 has been accomplished. All the promises from the Old Testament, starting in Genesis 3:15, find their yes and their amen. And Jesus on the cross saying, it's finished. So that's why it's just one little word. And Satan, he's done. All evil and the source of it destroyed. And friends, this is not just the evil out there, it's the evil in here. Set your gaze on the cross and that word of finished victory and see if God does not transform and change and crush the evil in you. We are more than conquerors in Christ. Let's pray together.